Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and often in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is the next in our In Their Own Words oral history series, in which we talk with scientists who've made great contributions to their fields, particularly in the biological sciences. This week's guest is Gene Likens, Emeritus President of the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies and a distinguished professor at the University of Connecticut. He's also a past president of AIBS. Let's go to the interview. Dr. Likens, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm delighted uh, to be here. and. Uh... You forced me to think about some things connected with AIBS that I hadn't thought about in a long time. So glad to, glad to be here. Well, that's, that's great news to us. Uh, our first question is, when did you first know that you wanted to work in the life sciences? Well, uh, I've really had a lifetime interest in nature. I grew up on a small farm in northern Indiana. And uh, as a young boy, I spent a lot of my time in the fields um, and the woods, as we call them, and the ponds and lakes around the farm. Um, and so I've always had an interest uh, from my earliest recollections in nature. But it probably wasn't until my senior year in college um, uh, that I decided to do it um, seriously. Um, I was, until then, thinking I was going to be a, a high school basketball coach and maybe teach biology or something. And, and it wasn't until the senior year that I decided to um, go on to graduate school and, and do it all professionally. Was there anything in particular that happened in that senior year of college or was it just, you know, the interest grew over time? Uh, no, there was, there was something <laughs> specifically that happened. Uh, from my earliest uh, recollections, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. Um, I can't tell you exactly why, but that's what I always wanted to do. And uh, so um, I had pursued that uh, as a child by trying to hit small pebbles with a stick because we didn't have a bat. And I thought, well, okay, if I can hit a small pebble with a stick, I can probably hit a baseball. Um, and then I got a chance uh, to play professional baseball for two years uh, in what was called the Rookie Leagues. Um, and I, I did that and really enjoyed that, did well. But I decided that isn't what I wanted to do. And so um, I did that when I was a junior and senior in college. And so uh, that's when I uh, decided that I was going to go on to uh, graduate school. I also have to say that one of my professors, Emerson Nicewander at Manchester College, had been pursuing me aggressively that I had to go on to graduate school. And I said, no, I don't want to go on to graduate school. And he pursued me and pursued me. And I uh, uh, said I was in Northern Indiana, Manchester is in North Manchester, Indiana. And I needed to drive to South Bend, Indiana to Notre Dame to take the graduate record exam. Uh, which was really quite an ordeal, but um, I did it. And so that's that all came together, and I went on to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And what did you study initially there? Uh, limnology. Um, I was always interested in 
uh, lakes and water. Uh, when I first went to Wisconsin, I wasn't at all sure what I wanted to do, but I was assigned um, a major professor, Arthur Hassler, and um, listening to him and following some of his interests, I got really interested uh, in doing that. Um, I remember specifically as a in the fall semester of my first year as a graduate student being in one of his classes and I was sitting way in the back, probably the back row, and he was talking about studies in northern Wisconsin of lakes. And so after class was over, I went up to the front and I said, uh, Dr. Hassler, I really enjoyed what you were saying about your research in northern Wisconsin on the lakes there. Um, can you really get paid for doing that kind of work? <laughs> And he laughed and said, well, yes, you can. And, and um, uh, actually, I have a graduate student that's going to northern Wisconsin this coming weekend. If you'd like to ride along um, and see what he's doing, you can. I did. I got hooked. And that led to my career. That's fantastic. And what sort of research was being done up at those uh, northern Wisconsin lakes? Well, a number of things. Uh, one of the things that really interested me was the um, manipulations of lakes uh, in that case, uh, they were trying to circulate lakes uh, to make them clearer. These were acid bog lakes, and so the, the, the coloring in the water uh, prevented sunlight to penetrate, and the productivity was low, and the fish production was low, so uh, attempts were made to circulate the water with chemicals like uh, lime or hydrogen peroxide or whatever to precipitate out the dissolved organic matter and make the lakes uh, more productive and shift their fish populations. And so that experimental approach was really very interesting to me. What would you say was the biggest surprise of your career? Of my whole career, I suppose um, the discovery of acid rain at Hubbard Brook. Um, the very first sample that I collected at Hubbard Brook in June of 1963 uh, we were just starting our large Hubbard Brook ecosystem study. Uh, in that first sample, uh, the rain is in uh, June of 1963, was about a hundred times more acidic than we thought it should be. Uh, we really didn't know what it should be because <laughs> there weren't data for comparison, but it seemed exceptionally acidic. So we were very puzzled. Where was it coming from? How uh, did it get that way? How long had it been that way? Uh, did it have an ecological effect? And on and on. So I s would say that's probably uh, the biggest surprise in my career. And what was that moment like? You know, is is this one where you you know rerun the test ten times? Um, oh yes. You know, bring other people into the room, or is it, it sounds like it would be shocking. Uh, it was shocking, and in fact, at that time, 1963. Uh, the measurement of pH in just water was rather difficult. Um, and we did it with a, a soil pH meter, actually, a Model G Beckman pH meter, as I recall. And so, yes, we had to rerun it and, and then collect other samples. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a big aha moment. Wow, what is that? Is it? And we didn't know whether it was really um, 
significant ecologically at all. Um, the, the, the theoretical idea was that at uh, ambient concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the lowest pH uh, should be about pH 5.6 or so um, in, in pure water, in, in distilled water. Uh, and this was a hundred times or so more acidic than that. But did that, was that important? Did that have any impact? And after all, it didn't rain all the time and the amount of rain was sometimes very small and so forth. And and what were the, you know, the the months and years after that, you know, you know, validating that finding and, you know, searching out the acidity of rainwater elsewhere? Like I, I recall at least reading one story in which you were flying around in a plane, perhaps, uh, you know, reach, reaching out the side of it and, and sampling uh, directly from clouds. Oh, well, that's correct. Um, well, uh, it's a long story, uh, but trying to find any other um, uh, people that were working on acid rain, um, we didn't generate that term until our first paper. So from that first sample in June of 1963, we didn't publish the first paper until 1972. So nine years later, it took us that long to try to understand what this was all about uh, initially and whether it was real and, and all of that. And it was in that paper that uh, we titled the paper Acid Rain. And the three of us authors, I'm the, the first author and Herb Borman and Noy Johnson were uh, co-authors. And we argued a lot about what the title of the paper should be. Uh, and I argued that, well, we really didn't want to call it uh, the um, acidity of precipitation in, in New England. Uh, that just didn't have much impact, I argued. And I prevailed. So we just called it acid rain. And that really caught on um, as something that was uh, understandable and uh, the image of what acid rain was uh, to the public. So th that was an important title, I think. So we, we had to uh, try to find out, as I said, where it came from, how long it had been that way. So uh, later on, uh, during this nine-year period, we, was trying, we were trying to understand all of that. So working with colleagues at the uh, National Center for Atmospheric Research, NCAR, in Boulder, uh, we used one of their small planes and flew through plumes of uh, emissions from the power plants in the Midwest, places like Ohio and Indiana and Kentucky. Um, and <laughs> very primitively opened the window of the small plane and held a, a funnel-like collector out the window and collected some of the, of the uh, pollution plume to try to get an understanding. Our idea was that these large-scale emissions that were occurring in the Midwestern um, part of the U.S. were being transported by generally um, winds from the west to the east and was falling, and that precipitation was falling then down as polluted rain on uh, our um, environment in, in the eastern U.S. And so that was an attempt to try to find out if that was true. We did later on use some isotopic work to um, more sophisticated 
carefully analyze um, what was going on. Uh, but there were there were many things like that. Uh, how long it had been that way? We set up uh, with colleagues. I, I set up with colleagues uh, collections in some of the remotest regions of the of the Earth, uh, the southern tip of Chile, the southern tip of South Africa, an island called Amsterdam Island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Takes a month by ship to get there. There was no landing strip there then, uh, a remote area in Australia and so forth. And we collected rain in those areas for 10 years or so in each of them in order to try to answer the question of what the rain was like before humans um, changed it. And the number we came up with was a pH of 5.1. So then that the reference that we use for what it was uh, prior to a major human contamination. And and was that the result that was published in the initial paper, or was that something that came along a little bit later? Much later. The initial paper was just laying out that there is such a thing as acid rain and um, what its ecological impacts might be. That was in 1972 and 1974. Um, by that time, I had moved from my first academic position at Dartmouth College to a position at Cornell University. And there I set up around the Finger Lakes a series of sampling uh, collectors and determined that the acidity, the pH of rain and snow uh, throughout the year was essentially the same around those Finger Lakes as we had been measuring at Hubbard Brook. So that was the first clue uh, that uh, this was a regional problem. It wasn't something just at Hubbard, some unusual thing just at Hubbard Brook. And that leads me to say about the role that serendipity has had in my life and in my career. If I hadn't moved to Cornell and if I hadn't set up those collectors, we wouldn't probably have had that insight about uh, the regional nature. So uh, we published a paper in 1974, two years after the acid rain paper uh, in science and suggested this was a regional problem and that the uh, main source was the Midwestern power plants. And this may be something that uh, we'll get into later, um, you know, depending on the, the, the answers that you have in mind. Um, but how did that then transition into, um, you know, advocacy and political involvement? Because, you know, it, 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 it's not often that a you know primarily scientific story like that reaches such a broad audience. And you know, I, I certainly recall discussions of uh, acid rain from my childhood in the '80s. Uh, it's probably the first conservation or ecologically related story that I ever heard in my life. And so, uh, you know, how did how did you get involved in that respect? Well, I think it's actually very rare that. Um, you live long enough or, or conditions evolve in a way that you're there from discovery to uh, political action. And I've been fortunate to do that with the acid rain uh, issue. So discovery in 1963 to political action, the Clean Air Act amendments in 1990. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to be in that rare <laughs> uh, group. I just happen to live long enough. So um, the, the issue then, after we published that paper in 
um, Science in 1974. That paper was featured on the front page of the New York Times um, the day before. So uh, that really uh, was very visible, obviously. And um, I had calls, it was calls back then, um, and letters from people all around the world saying, Lichens, what is going on? What is this stuff that's going on? And of course, then soon after, uh, the, the finger we pointed at the Midwestern power plants were saying, oh, no, 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 not us. We didn't do it. Um, we're not the cause of acid rain. And we were saying, yes, 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 you are, as far as we can tell. And that's, that's the time when we did the sampling from the small plane. Uh, you know, trying to, to trace those pollutants. We also had, uh, adding to the small plane, we also had a van on the ground uh, that we would try to follow storms and hoping that it would rain because whenever it would rain under one of those plumes or near one of those plumes, we'd stop the van and jump out and grab our collectors and try to get a sample of rain uh, and then move on. At any rate, so um, that's that's when the the issue about uh, relevance to uh, management and, and uh, federal regulation uh, started to appear. And, and that story, I think, is fairly common with um, issues, environmental issues that have had this kind of trajectory. For example, DDT uh, with Rachel Carson, um, uh, lead um, pollution, uh, maybe eutrophication of um, fresh waters, um, smoking. Uh, so th the the finger pointing at the source, and then the vested interest at that source saying, no, 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 not us. We didn't do it, and mounting a huge campaign to raise doubts um, about uh, that finger pointing. Um, that's really where it, where it started in terms of the, the relevance to management. And what's it like finding yourself in the middle of a conflict like that? Because I mean, yeah. you know, I know you don't, you, you certainly don't sign up for that when you enter a career in science, well, it's not the expectation necessarily. Yeah, I don't think you do. And, and you also, and particularly in that time, I had no training for how to uh, say, testify to a congressional committee or to uh, be, um, to respond to a rude uh, event. For example, I was giving a lecture once at Eastern Kentucky University, and I had just started to talk, and I was talking about acid rain, and the back doors of the auditorium literally burst open and this live camera crew came bursting into the auditorium with their bright lights flashing, came right down to the front, shined their lights into my eyes, and started to ask me questions with a microphone shoved right in my face. Well, I'd never had anything like that before in my life, and, and did I know how to respond to it exactly. Um, so it was, it was very different, and I had to learn quickly and I had to learn about things that uh, were not science per se, but but science education. Um, and um, yeah, it was it was a interesting 
a somewhat scary time. The 1980s I've called the acid rain wars because that was the period in which uh, the Reagan administration was pushing back very hard, um, uh, trying to show that there was no such thing as acid rain, um, let alone having any impacts. Um, does that remind you of anything now? <laughs> Unfortunately so. And, and um, so um, uh, having, having to meet those challenges uh, at all levels was, uh, was interesting, difficult. Uh, um, but looking back on it, um, you learn quickly. You learn quickly how to, how to adjust. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, at least to some degree, this is uh, something of a success story because there have been reductions in acid rain. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, currently at Hubbard Brook, for example, uh, the acidity is about 80% less than it was when we started to collect samples in the uh, 1960s. So that's a huge success story. Yeah. Do you have any advice for uh, you know scientists who may find themselves in these sorts of unexpected positions of advocacy and arguing for a greater conservation? Yeah, I've I've always said I think you should you should speak out, but I think you should speak out about things you know something about. That sounds um, like a trivial statement, but it's not. Um, and if you speak out about things that you know something about. And particularly if you know you're going to be interviewed by a reporter, there are some things you can do uh, to help clarify your message and, and get your message across. You could you could hand out a one page um, or email a one page to the reporter that's uh, interviewing you, so that uh, you can get your facts out the way they need to be uh, clearly. Uh, you could provide a photograph of your research. You could provide the caption for the photograph and things of that sort that keep you on topic when um, uh, the camera goes on. To me, there's nothing much scarier than when the red light of a television camera goes on and it's shoved right in your face and you're on live. And I've done that many times, and it's you. You just have to stay on topic uh, because very often the reporters want you to go off topic. That being when they get the good quotes. That's right. But not necessarily the good quotes for the uh, scientists necessarily. Well, sometimes you you say things that that are misused or not exactly the way you meant them. Um, and so that's one of the advantages of having a one pager that you could hand out uh, to a reporter. Um, to, and, uh, these are my points. This, this is what I want to say. I think that's excellent advice. Um, what would you say is the biggest difference between the way that science is conducted now and the way that it was when you first entered the field? <laughs> Actually, I'm laughing because, you know, uh, <laughs> we didn't have... Uh, uh, cell phones. We didn't have uh, computers. We didn't have the internet. Uh, uh, I had to build a, a lot of my own research uh, gear um, because I couldn't go buy it somewhere or, or I didn't have a, a machine shop to have it made for me. So uh, I largely built the things that I needed in the field to, to work on. Um, and um, yeah, that's all different now. 
And do you miss that ad hoc experience ever of, you know, having to kind of make things up as you go? Oh, I do. I do. And I think, I really think that I learned a great deal from, say, building uh, an instrument to do some sampling that I needed to do in a lake, for example, because I had to think really very hard about, well, what is it I'm trying to do here? And what do I need to do it properly? Um, and I think that forced me to do it better. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I do miss that. About, although I guess the, uh, the tinkers of today are, are now largely working on software, but I, I wonder if the experience might be similar in some ways as well. Well, not being a software tinkerer, I can't answer that question, but it may be, I don't know. It, it certainly could be, and I wouldn't know either. Let's talk about professional societies a bit. You know, what sort of role have they played in your career? And you know, are there any standout events? Um, my major professor, Arthur Hassler, that I mentioned previously, um, for whatever reason, uh, felt it was important for us graduate students to be involved in professional societies. So he urged us to do that and encouraged us to do that. So I've been a member of a professional society or, or several since about 1959. And the very first society that I was a member of was called the Midwest Benthological Society. And the first meeting that I remember going to was in Minneapolis. I gave a paper there and I was just starting my, my graduate work uh, at that time, that had been my second year. Um, and I've been a member of professional societies, several, many, ever since. Um, and I think they have been hugely important to my career. The, the, the exchange of information, obviously, very important, but the interaction with people, the learning of new ideas, uh, not only in the formal sessions, but in the informal uh, discussions, uh, the meeting of new people, the developing of uh, friendships and colleagues that I could work with. Much of my research has been with um, multi-colleague investigations. And so uh, some of those colleagues were recruited by me through uh, meetings, developing friendships and saying, hey, wouldn't you like to come join this new thing that uh, I want to do? And um, so, uh, oh, and I guess uh, being able to travel, the, the International um, Association for Theoretical and Applied Limnology um, has until now met every third year in some location throughout the world. And having the opportunity to see those locations all around the world uh, have been hugely um, informative to me. To see lakes and, and their surrounds um, all around the world uh, just gave me a totally different perspective that I never would have had without the opportunity for that that travel. So that's another component. Um, so yes, uh, scientific societies have been really very important to my career. I've been 
fortunate to lead um, four of them uh, as president, uh, including AIBS. And I uh, uh, found that uh, an interesting challenge, but also um, a very enlightening challenge. Um, and again, the opportunity to meet and interact with diverse people. And do you have any perhaps favorite stories from your time working with AIBS and leading AIBS, in fact? Mm, well, I think um, when Gregory Anderson, the University of Connecticut, was um, president, he probably suggested me as a possibility for uh, the presidency. And when I was approached, I think I said something like, oh, that's nice, thank you, but I'm just way too busy. I couldn't possibly do that. Um, but at least I'd have to ask my wife. <laughs> and and then I did it, and I found time to do it, and I really enjoyed uh, being a part of AFBS. Kind of a funny story, at least it was funny to me. I was... Um, um, presiding at the awards ceremony in Washington, D.C., and I was presenting an award to Stephen Jay Gould. And in the audience, um, there were a lot of people there, but near the front was a very distinguished uh, scientist, Bruce Alberts, who was then president of the National Academy of Sciences. And right in the middle of of my presentation, uh, a cell phone went off. And Bruce's wife smacks him in the arm and says and said something like, Bruce, I told you to turn off your cell phone. He fumbled around looking for his cell phone. I mean, just disrupted though. He fumbled around for his cell phone and he pulled it out and he didn't know it, it's off, it's off. And so we went on. Well, then after that session was over with, my wife, who was sitting right behind Bruce Alberts, came up to me and she said, you know, that was my cell phone <laughs> that went off. Uh, so uh, little things like that, um, not very important, but but they stick with you for a long time. That's that's very funny. And, uh, and actually, Dr. Anderson uh, told the story of recruiting you for... Oh, he did. Well, I'm sure he, yeah, I'm sure he, he was the one, but... Uh, and I'm glad he did, um, but I, I at the time didn't think I possibly could add that to what I was doing. But I'm glad he did. Yeah, he re he reported that um, he successfully convinced you, and also called your wife, and uh, <laughs> thought he'd been successful in convincing her that it was a good idea, and found out later that uh, perhaps she'd thought that you were ra already rather busy. <laughs> Moving on, what would you say is your most challenging day on the job? Well. I have really loved my job. Um, I can't honestly think of any day I've ever gotten up dreading to go to work because I don't consider it work. I consider it fun. And so I have been very fortunate to have a job like that. So many people dread going to work and to not dread going to work I think is a huge, huge uh, uh, benefit and, and um, kind of an honor uh, that I was so lucky to uh, get that kind of, of work. 
but maybe um, I was I was president at the Institute of Ecosystem Studies in Millbrook in uh, 9/11 when the World Trade Center buildings were bombed uh, by the planes, and when we got that news. Um, I called all of the employees. We had about a hundred employees at the Institute. I called all of them together in our auditorium. And I had to try to find some words of, of consolation and hope. And I remember that being really, really difficult. Um, but that was a part of my job. And um, I think I did it okay, hopefully well, but I think I did it okay. Um, but that was a tough day of on the job. Yeah, I can certainly imagine. Did, was there an impact uh, then to your work directly as a result of 9-11? Or were you, uh, you know, geographically distinct enough? Well, well, we're about uh, two hours drive from Manhattan. Millbrook is about two hours drive from Manhattan north. Uh, but we did have a... Um, um, a fog collector, we were analyzing the chemistry of, of fog water, and we had a fog um, water collector on one of the towers. Um, and so that obviously ended that work. So in, in that way, it affected uh, me and my colleagues, but uh, that was minor to all the lives that were lost, of course. Of course. And um... Now making a complete 180 degree turn and looking at the absolute other side of things, do you have a best day on the job? Um, well, that's a tough question because I said already that they all were great. Well, uh, okay, a, a kind of maybe funny story. So this is gonna be uh, maybe a little longer than you wanted. But so when I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, um, I was in a, a graduate student office with about actually four other uh, grad students and we're right across the hall from uh, Professor Hassler's office. And one day he knocked on our door and came in and he said, I just got a call from Dartmouth College and they've had a uh, faculty member that suddenly has had to leave and they're looking for a replacement, someone to teach aquatic ecology during the fall semester. This was during the summertime when Hester came into the office. And if any of you would be interested, let me know because they're, they're desperate to find somebody and, and uh, would like to do that soon and turned around and left. All of the students and I, we looked at one another and I'm not, I'm not making this up. We all said, where's Dartmouth College? <laughs> we, we didn't know. We were Midwesterners and I guess totally naive Midwesterners. Uh, so I had above my desk um, on a shelf, the Collegiate Webster's Dictionary. And I pulled it down in the back. There was a listing of all the colleges and universities in the country and looked up Dartmouth and it gave the their um, location and date of origin, whatever. And then it said, all men. And I read this out. And then the group really thought that was funny because we weren't familiar with any kind of all men or all women colleges. And Dartmouth was all male at that time. Well, 
I ended up going uh, because uh, I had the fall semester available to do that, and I thought it might be fun, um, and it turned out to be. And I mentioned serendipity before, but if that serendipitous event hadn't happened and I hadn't gone to Dartmouth College, I wouldn't have been able to found the Hubbard Brook Ecosystem Study, and I wouldn't have discovered acid rain, and on and on and on. So that was a very big day in my life, uh, looking back on it, totally unplanned, totally um, uh, driven by serendipity. I define serendipity as keeping your eyes, ears, and mind open. And if something interesting comes along, you jump on it uh, and try to make something of it. So I guess that would have to be um, a time that I would say was very significant in my career. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that, you know, nearly leads into this this next question, and, and we may put a twist on it. Um, but, you know, what event from your career do you think will be best remembered long into the future? And I, I th obviously the discovery of acid rain is um, perhaps even more than a front runner. But um, if not that, what would you like to be remembered from your work? Well, I think you're right about acid rain. I think that is a very significant um, study and, and, and the fact that uh, we were able to get to federal regulation and management that has now reduced the problem, that, that makes it a success story. Um, when I'm introduced for a lecture or an event of some sort, usually the introduction focuses on the fact that I was a co-founder of the Hubbard Brook Ecosystem Study and the founder of the Institute of Ecosystem Studies. Um, not so much about any awards or, or how many papers I've written, but it's those two things that are usually um, mentioned. I, I recently, in November, gave a, a major lecture in Vienna, Austria, and that's the way they introduced me, uh, <laughs> just that way. And it got me to thinking about, uh, well, I guess that's maybe uh, the among the most important things I've done. Um, and, and that's really not so much about me. It's about all the, the people that have now worked through Hubbard Brook as students and colleagues and um, uh, technicians and what they've learned there. And then all the people that have worked through the uh, Institute of Ecosystem Studies, now called the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies. Um, that impact, uh, uh, I'm very proud of. And, you know, what do you think makes Hubbard Brooks so special? Well, I think we were early on in terms of uh, trying to understand how uh, large-scale systems work. Uh, we certainly were early on in doing large-scale experiments, experiments at the watershed scale. I mentioned um, earlier today that at the University of Wisconsin, I was really taken by uh, the experimental, experimental approach that 
uh, was being applied to lakes in northern Wisconsin. And that really stuck with me because doing experimental work is so powerful in science. And to be able to do it on natural systems and large scale natural systems is just, in my view, an extremely powerful way of doing uh, that kind of science. So I, I took that approach to Dartmouth and, and with my colleagues, Borman and uh, Herb Borman and Bob Pierce and Noe Johnson, we were the founders of the Hubbard Brook Ecosystem Study. Uh, I argued very aggressively and successfully that we needed to do uh, large experiments at Hubbard Brook. So the very first one we did was to deforest an entire watershed. It wasn't a logging operation, it was an experiment. And that experiment is um, uh, discussed and reproduced in essentially all the major uh, biology and ecology textbooks currently. So I guess, I guess that's um, what I would say. It's, one might think of it as one of the very early large-scale outdoor laboratories. Right, right. And it, and it, 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 of course, the discovery of acid rain there was, uh, was or is a part of that. And I think the approach that we took where we tried to look at what uh, I call air land water interactions. So it was the atmosphere, the, the terrestrial system, the aquatic systems, both, um, streams and a lake in the valley that we've done a lot of studies on mirror lake uh, trying to combine all of those things um, and talking about airsheds and watersheds uh, trying to take that scale up to those levels but in a quantitative way yeah and, and is the element of time particularly important there too because it you know a lot of the the work has been carried out over you know years rather than a shorter scale experiment. Well, that's right. Our long-term monitoring efforts um, have now given us insights that we'd never gotten from shorter term uh, studies. And so I think we're what, 47, I'm sorry, 57 years of continuous monitoring of precipitation and streamwater chemistry and hydrology done by the U.S. Forest Service. And um, integrating all of those uh, over a long time period, as I said, have just given us insights that we wouldn't have gotten, uh, I don't think any other way, because we do modeling and we do uh, plot studies and we do uh, on ground studies or in lake studies or in stream studies, but it's that long-term monitoring that says, oh, wow, look at that. How did that change and what caused that? to happen. And then you can go into the system and try to answer that. That's really interesting. What's the most frightening or intimidating thing that's happened to you in your career? Uh, you, you've mentioned at least one of having the, the red light of the camera uh, put in your face, but, but does anything else spring to mind? Well, when I was uh, this young, very naive graduate student that um, didn't even know where Dartmouth College was, and then I went there as a, a young professor, actually, I was uh, my first position was as instructor, <laughs> um, um, and and New England 
is very different than the Midwest, uh, not just in cultural things, but uh, the water is different. The water, it's, it's, um, it has low calcium magnesium bicarbonate content, whereas the Midwest, it has relatively high calcium magnesium bicarbonate content. So all that I thought I knew about water and water analysis and, and uh, water sampling uh, all had to be relearned. Um, so it was pretty intimidating as a very young, naive, um, scientists going into that um, environment at Dartmouth. And Dartmouth had just changed from a department of zoology and a department of botany into a department of biological sciences. And frankly, the biologists, I'm sorry, the zoologists and the botanists didn't like each other much. So I walked into that, that situation and I was being courted from both sides. Uh, and I as an ecosystem ecologist, one of the reasons I went into ecosystem ecology is because I couldn't decide what I liked better, botany, zoology, and I didn't have to as an ecosystem scientist. So they were trying to court me to join their side of the of the equation, and that was all very strange to me. I uh, so that was intimidating, but but I worked my way through it. So it's, it sounds like a little bit of a culture shock. It was, it was, and that and then. And and there is a big and and more so then, a big difference in in New England uh, and the Midwest. Um, you know the the big fields of corn and soybean and and whatever in the Midwest just don't exist in uh, northern New England. Uh, what are you working on right now? Um, I'm. Working on a number of, of papers, I, I, I'm retired, but actually retired twice, but I can't quite figure out what that means. So um, I'm working on a, a number of scientific papers um, by myself and with colleagues. I'm working on a book slowly. Uh, I'm calling that the IES story, IES being the Institute of Ecosystem Studies. Um, because I think that has an unusual story in terms of the formation and some of the things that um, I tried to do there, um, uh, securing an absolute top-notch faculty, but not offering them tenure and not offering them uh, a startup package. Um, and it worked really very well and made us in many ways stronger, more cohesive than I think if we'd gone the other way. So I'm trying to capture some of, of those things that, that I did that uh, led to um, the success of the Institute of Ecosystem Studies. Now, and obviously without scooping your book, but you know, what are some of the impacts of, of having a system like that without large startup packages and tenure? Well, for well, for example, um, I think this is a good example. If you give somebody a very large startup package, then, and, and often they, not always, but often they uh, need to be spent in a certain period of time, maybe two or five years or whatever the time might be. And that's hard to do, uh, particularly as a young scientist, uh, to know what you want to do and, and whether you want to buy this million dollar instrument uh, and is this going to be the way you really want to put a lot of money 
out or what. So I told um, my incoming faculty that I wasn't going to give them a startup package, but I didn't plan to go away and anything they would need, I would provide. And um, so it was a startup package that I held. So for example, then if they needed a fancy, very expensive piece of equipment, uh, rather than rushing out and buying it, we explored whether anybody else in the Institute might need the same piece of equipment or and whether we could buy one and have it be shared and uh, operated jointly. That worked beautifully. It really worked beautifully. Um, so that there wasn't, you know, a fancy instrument, one uh, right next to themselves in adjacent rooms halfway down the hall. Um, so that that's an example of how it really worked well. In the role of tenure or the absence thereof, how did that play into things? I offered them five-year appointment, uh, renewable, and at the end, or in, in preparation for that renewal, uh, they were asked to um, uh, indicate what they had done in the previous five years and what they planned to do in the next five years. Uh, they were asked to um, identify 10, only 10, of their best publications during that period. And then I sent those packages out to the best people that I could find anywhere in the world. And I essentially asked the question, are these the best people anywhere that I can find to hire at the Institute of Ecosystem Studies? And uh, we hired well, and uh, the answers always came back, yes, these are top-notch people, hang on to them. And moving along to our last couple of questions, if you were entering graduate school today, is there anything that you would do or study differently? Well, um, given what I've said before, probably not, because I've been very fortunate to have things work out well in that and by well, I mean that I really enjoy what I do. It's fun and not work for me. It's fun. But also I've said that I was, I probably still am, very naive. And I think today um, I wouldn't be that naive. Um, I think times are different. And with the access of information, um, um, through say Google or whatever, you know, we didn't have that kind of uh, access. The downsides to that too, in my opinion. But um, so, um, yeah, I'm happy with with the way my career uh, developed and progressed. I'm very fortunate. And uh, you've given us already a, a bit of a primer on uh, you know some media training for young scientists. But do you have any other advice for people who are just entering the field? Sure, but let me go back to the media training a bit. Um, University of Connecticut, where I'm currently um, teaching part-time in my retired uh, position uh, and enjoying it actually very much. I'm there in the fall semester. Um, UConn has um, a, a very active program and, and a course, um, maybe more than one course, in which they combine journalism students and journalism professors with ecology and evolutionary biology students and professors. And they talk about how to talk with the media and how to interact with the media. 
Um, and I think this is this is terrific. Um, they they practice um, meeting with a, a journalist, um, and they bring in well-known journalists uh, to work with them and to help them. Uh, wow, I would have loved to have had uh, that uh, exposure and experience when when I was well anywhere as a graduate student, but as a young faculty member particularly. Um, so advice to um, young people in general, maybe, but, but students, is find time to think and to think deeply. I'm actually concerned, worried, maybe too strong, that um, the pace of, of life these days and the activities that we're expected to do really don't give us a lot of time to think deeply unless you really make that time. So I think my advice would be make that time to think really deeply because as a scientist, that's what it's really about. Uh, it's not rushing to the next uh, meeting in when we can again in uh, India or somewhere. It's thinking deeply about uh, some issue and thereby making uh, progress toward understanding. And then I guess the other thing I would say, again, it's trite, but it isn't. Uh, don't ever give up. And it's easy to give up. Uh, particularly on hard problems, but don't ever give up. Well, that's that's great advice, uh, you know, for now more than ever, and I think a good note on which to leave it. Uh, Dr. Likens, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.